Good morning. Let me pray. God, thank you for, <clears throat> for you. I pray we would be aware of grace today. I was struck during worship of thinking how, yeah, just we have been alienated and you have sent Jesus to bring us back and we are being saved, as Paul says. We have, we have been saved. It's finished. And yet we are being saved, being transformed, brought further and further <coughs> along and just find myself longing more and more to to just be in that full presence and uh, just pray that that we would catch tastes of that and that that would give us life and encouragement and compel us to love and mission. So be with me, God. Help me to sort through all this and help us to lean in and hear by your spirit. Pray that it would be your spirit's work here today, not ours. Amen. Good. Well, welcome again, Cedar Rapids, Cedar Falls, those joining online. We are continuing our uh, series in Isaiah. For years, I was intimidated to preach this book because it's long and it's Old Testament. It was, you know, it's there's some stuff to figure out, but I'm really glad and thankful that God has led us here in this last stretch here has just been really encouraging and uh, just to hear God's word to, to us and how we should view him and how he sees us. And Isaiah 56 strikes again. It's, uh, there's a lot here. There's uh, this call to mission in this. He talks about revealing himself right, to all the foreigners, right? And that means you, to some extent. If we remember, this call started with Abraham and ex expanded. God created a people called the Jews or the Israelites back then, and then that expanded from there, and the first century exploded and um, is, gone, is going out to the ends of the earth. So we are those foreigners referred to in this text that are being brought near. Now, it's not done. We continue to go to the nations and extend the call to foreigners, but... This is us. We're proof that God does what he says he's going to do. And he's calling us to mission to go. And as you've heard, you know, Krista Amundsen going with YWAM to, to Greece, where God is bringing refugees from all over. And we partner with others in India and such. The Lord willing, we'll be able to resume uh, taking trips to India and joining them in what they're doing here. But we're also called to our neighbors here, right? So it's not just, we're all missionaries in a sense. We've kind of designated some people missionaries, right? People that go overseas are missionaries, but we're all missionaries. We're all called to share, you know, the good news of who God is for us. I read this quote several weeks ago on Facebook, and it's good. It just kind of shakes us up, I think, shook me up a bit, and made me reflect on my life and what we're doing here, what we're doing here, and what we're doing in life. And he's talking about this idea of Mission, right? Because we're going and calling people to Christ and to mission. And, you know, are we thinking properly about it? And here's what he says. I don't even know who this is. Somebody share this on Facebook. Most people today attempt to make a sales pitch for the gospel as if it were sweet plums and fairy dust. When it more accurately should be cast as an adventure full of blood, death, insurrection, trouble, persecution, and certain difficulty with the shocking and ultra-dramatic final chapter in which the good guys win. That reads a lot more like the Bible. He's not done. 
In my opinion, this adventure dimension should be our sales pitch. Instead, the modern thought is woo the masses in with Starbucks franchises stationed in the church, in the church lobby, movie-based sermons, beer and hot dog potlucks after the service, and, and he's talking about Joe Brinkman here, listen to this, <laughs> and the cool pelvic thrust of a semi-moral band. Semi-moral. <laughs> That's true. We're all semi-moral. Um, Christianity, however, is the most explosive, most vibrant, most beautiful, most extraordinary news this universe has ever encountered. And yet all of us Christians are trying to make it more palatable. We're downplaying God's right to rule, to overtake, and possess the lives of each and every person on this terrestrial ball. What might happen if we were to just let the gospel be what it is, a gritty, bloody, revolutionary call to die? You know, I listened to a podcast called Voice of the Martyrs for a reason. It's, it's inspiring. No one's listening to stories of my life. I mean, God's using me, and yeah, there's this and that, right? But I don't know. I feel a gap. I feel a gap when I read the scripture and I see Christ and I read stories of these missionaries and I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I feel caught into that. It's awesome in its truest sense. I've literally, listen to this. Everybody always says that they just want to die in their sleep. I've talked to my wife about that. Right? I just want to, Let's just get in a car accident, quick death, right? Like, it's painless. Here's what he says. Everybody says they just want to die in their sleep. Well, I don't want to die in my sleep. I don't want to hit, get hit by a car and go quickly without feeling a thing. I'm not saying I wish to die of some gangrenous disease, withering away while people whisper among themselves, it's just so sad. But I have a hankering to die with heavenly gusto. I want to go out in a way that will bring a panicky uproar in hell and rousing applause in heaven. And then he says this, which is, he says, I want to die a martyr. Now, part of me feels like that's a bit much, like that's God, God will determine that. Okay? But in the best sense, I'm getting his sentiment. He's inspired by that. The voice of the martyrs and the suffering and the willing to forsake the world for God. And he says, I want to be, I would put it this way, I, w- I would like to be alive in God enough to consider that. How about that? It's more real. I want to die a martyr. Oh. But what are, we, what are we doing? I mean, you just read these things about God and who he is and what he's doing, and, and he's calling us. to. And it doesn't mean we all have to go to the nations, but we do go to our neighbors, and we go toward one another, and what would life look like, right, to be in love, in the love of God, and live out of that? So that's what we're here to do, to fight. And I want to invite you together to fight for this, right? We always do, but I just want to call it out specifically. I have a pet peeve. I have a handful of them. One is taking notes during sermons. Do it if you want. But you don't. 
take notes during the movies. You don't take notes when you make out. I hope not. You're like, well, that was pretty good. But <laughs> do that again. But you do take note, right? Like, this is what I'm saying. Like, let's, let's ask God to help us suspend this idea that we just have to remember things and bring us into the place where we are just with him. We are mingling. We are being, and it's just good. Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. There's a couple things going on here in these two verses. One, he's saying, do justice, do good things, seek righteousness, do good works. It's there. And he says, because my salvation will be revealed. So there's something at least to take away here, which is this. We aren't saved by our works. He's going to save. Right? We're not saved by works. Right? But we are saved for works. His salvation will be revealed. So here what he's talking about, in one sense, he's talking about Israel being saved out of Babylon. But in its greatest sense, we know what he's talking about is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the salvation of God revealed. And he's talking to them back then and saying, it's coming. I'm coming. I will show my salvation. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Keep living like me. Not to earn it. You don't buy me, right? God's not for sale. Well, then why do all these things? Because they're good. It's like God. God is just. God is righteous. God is rest. So lean into that. Live in that. It's not connected to your salvation in a purchase sense. But it's connected to it in the sense that when you know God and he's called you into him, you begin to imitate him. You love righteousness. Righteousness is pure and good and free and guiltless and powerful and justice. It's great. It's a thing of beauty, right? So we see that God is calling us into imitation of him. Not to purchase him, but to know him. The ultimate salvation that's revealed is Jesus. Colossians 1 describes Jesus this way. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And men walked with him and saw him face to face. One author describes Jesus this way. All divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God. This is Jesus Christ, the salvation of God. He is the mighty God, the great God, God over all. Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He's declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the creator and upholder of the universe. All things, as Colossians says, were created through him and for him. And by him all things consist. The angels are commanded to bow. He is the object of all religious sentiment of reverence, love, faith, devotion. He declares that he and the Father are one, that whoever has seen the Father has seen him. And he calls all men unto him promises to forgive their sins, to send them the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace, to raise them up on the last day, to give them eternal life. This is Jesus. 
the revelation of God's salvation. And we are called, right, as Ephesians says, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's the salvation. Jesus saves us. We are created, made new in him. It's finished. And that has a purpose. What is it? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then God talks about two groups of people in the next several verses. He talks about the foreigner and the eunuch. My son leaned over during worship and said, what's a eunuch? And I thought, well, stay tuned. This is inquiring minds want to know. This idea of a foreigner. So, right, so God started with Abraham in this created a people called the Israelites, the Jews, and this has gone out to the nations. You've got this idea, there's a strong sense in the Old Testament that God is working with the Jews, right? And everyone else is an exile, a foreigner. And to a great extent, the gospel's not going forth. There's a little bit when people, these foreigners, it says this way, right? Join themselves in verse 6, when they join themselves to the Lord. That's exploded now. But there's a sense of being a foreigner, of being alienated. And he says to this foreigner, right? Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. He's saying, your joining to me is not temporary. Not going to separate. You have become one in Christ. This is the key to racial reconciliation, by the way. I was talking with my family yesterday about my background. What, I, I, am I Hispanic, Latino, Mexican, Spanish? Latinx? I don't even know what that is. I think I'm that. Well, I think it's up to me, so sure, I'm that. But here's the thing. Paul says I'm a Jew inwardly. That's who I am. A real Jew is not one who practices Sabbath and keeps circumcision and all these things, but a Jew is a Jew inwardly, right? And circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart by the spirit. So we're all, I'm not a foreigner anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm brought in. I'm fully adopted as a son, united in Christ. He's not going to cut me off. He's not going to cut you off. We are in. This speaks to the outsiders, right? The foreigners. So there's this, here he specifically mentions foreigners, but it's everybody, right? We've talked about God wants those who feel like outcasts, right? The nerds, the dweebs, the doofuses. I literally wrote that in my notes. Are you a doofus? Good news. <laughs> but it's this idea, right, that God is after the, the wayward, the lost. I read for the first time this week the, the poem that is, I believe it's written on the tablet, right, of the Statue of Liberty. It's called New Colossus. Now, there's, it, it's paganism, right? There's a, it's, to some extent, nationalism, all this stuff. But there's a shadow there. This is really good poetry, and the, answer, the question is why, and I think it's because it approaches God. It's approaching a great truth. Listen to this. There's some excerpts from it describing the Statue of Liberty. A, a mighty woman with a torch, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command. Ooh. Listen to that. That's Jesus. His mild eyes command. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. 
Do you get the irony there, right? She cries with silent lips. He, before his shearers, is silent and yet pleading. The silent word is pleading, right? Like, this is approaching God. This is why it's beautiful. This is what Christ is saying to you, to the foreigners. Come in. Give me your tired. This is the more familiar part. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Wow. That's quite the, quite the promise. <laughs> Give me the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's a shadow. Oh, it's good. And there's been some good here. And there's been some horrific things, which is why it's a shadow. But Christ fulfills that. His mild eyes command. Are you tempest-tossed? Are you wretched refuse? Then God wants you, foreigner, and he wants eunuchs. What is that? It's a man who has been castrated. What is that? See, some of you know, but some of you don't. Sweet. It's a man whose bits have been removed. Okay, is that clear? Everyone? Everyone's a little uncomfortable. Look. Why would they do such a thing? Well, it's a man who's been castrated, especially in the past, as one employed to guard the women's living areas at a court. So you know, men of power would enlist other men to serve them, and then they would castrate them as a way to di disempower them, right? You're not going to go after my women because you can't anymore, right? And you're going to become subservient. And so this is a picture we've seen earlier in Isaiah. He calls out to the barren woman, right? Rejoice, O barren one. And that's more like a woman, right? This can't give birth. And here's a man. The same idea. Let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. Who am I? What is my place? Because this is all connected, right? The ability to bear fruit. We've talked about this. That Children are a blessing from the Lord, and it's a beautiful thing. And there's a legacy aspect to it, and there's a, just a delight and a replication, and it is a great gift. And we are more than that, so that if that doesn't happen, we can still rejoice. But it is a great thing. And so it's understandable why when someone is barren or a eunuch, they would almost despair. And God is saying, good news, eunuch. You will bear fruit. Listen to what he says. The eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me. So there's the people that are walking with God, right? And hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. He will give you a name. Right? Because this is, who is this about identity. Right? Our sexuality and our fruitfulness and our works are not our identity. We make them our identity, but they are not our identity. And God is saying, in spite of that and your unbelief, I'm going to go beyond your barrenness, your uniqueness, all of this, and I'm going to give you a name. And this name, this name is 
who you are. We, we name one another, right? Bill, Beth, whatever. Like, and then you kind of become identified with it. Like my daughter, one of our, our daughters is named Chicken, right? And she's come of age now where she's kind of embarrassed by it. But what are you going to do? So when, we meet new, when she meets new people out in the world, she tells them her name is Aubrey, which is not true. <laughs> that is a lie. But when she meets people and we're there, she wants to say Aubrey, but she knows she's a chicken. So she has to say, my name is Chicken. And she is a chicken. We get it. When I was young, I was embarrassed by my name. So my, for those of you that don't, my name is Donovan Santa Maria. It, I like it now. It's, yeah, it's, it's great. Latinx, right? It's great. But when I was a kid, I was embarrassed because it made me different. I was already weird, and I didn't need a different name. So I thought well, I would make up a name. When I would go out, you know, on the streets, and I would meet people, I'd say, I'd th okay, what is the most normal white name? And I would tell people my name was Mike. <laughs> just one syllable, just, that's it. I'm Mike. But I knew that relationship wasn't going anywhere, right? They would discover the real me. This idea of this name, though, he says, I'm going to give you a name, and it's better than sons and daughters. Oh, sons and daughters. Oh, what a treasure. It's better than that? So listen, if you haven't been able to have sons and daughters, he's going to give you a name better than that. If you have had sons and daughters, he's going to give you a name better than that. They're not that great. I was talking with someone today. They just had a grandchild born this week, and you know, we're talking about the blessing, but it's also a burden, and it's a challenge, and it's hard, and there's all, I mean, the years, you know, young people get, we're talking about how God gives these babies that are dependent to young people who don't have any experience, and I think the reason is they're naive. They think it's going to be great. We're going to have kids. It's going to be lovely, you know? So those of you that are 50, you're like, I would never do it again. <laughs> but here's the thing. They are wonderful they're beautiful. St. Augustine says this about the creation, and I think it applies to children as well. If these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, you are a beauty afforded to me. And if these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, oh, what does God have in store for those who love him? A name better than sons and daughters. A monument. Now, I want to, I will give them, verse 5 continuing, what is he going to give us? An everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's identity. Now, I don't want to go too far. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to Isaiah 62 because it's coming. But here's what he says there. <laughs> For Zion's sake. So who's Zion? God's people. God's speaking here. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I'm going to say something for your sake, for your joy. I care about you. I love you. I want you to be happy. I have a wonderful plan for your life. And because of that, I will not be silent, says God. And he talks about our glorification at the end of history. The nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. Here's the name, the name that the Lord is giving you. So not Donovan or Mike or, it's not that. That's not your name. 
This is a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. And it is, my delight is in her. So this is where I'm asking us to lean in and imagine. Like your name is, God's delight is in you. That's the name he chose. My delight is in you. That's your name. That's your identity. That's who you are. The pleasure of the, this Christ that we described earlier, right? right? Omniscient, omnipresent, God, Lord of lords, King of kings. His delight is in you. My delight is in her. I was sitting with a pastor this week who's sad. He's a sad pastor. Some had some trials, especially recently. But a lot of it had to do with he's probably nearing the end of his ministry and it hasn't been what he hoped. And he's sad. And he said this. Will I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Push on this if you want. And that's certainly part of the Bible. But the way he's relating to this is mostly the performance orientation. And looking at his life and judging it, and looking forward to meeting his father, and being afraid to disappoint. It's a performance orientation. And it's destroying his joy. And I just want us to think less about that. I mean, let it have its place, right? That's in there. It's in the scriptures. But it's not the root. Service is not the root. We are God's servants. But the root is identity. Who we are in Him. The service flows out of that. And we, what we are are, is his delight. That's what he needs to know. As he end, reaches the end of his ministry and questions it all, God's delight is in you. God's delight is in you. He likes you. He delights in you. And we've talked about this the past few weeks, right? Now. God, we just, God, help us. God, speak to us. God, like in our Hearts, in our, come to us at night, in our dreams, open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see God. That's what we need. We are going to be taken ultimately into the presence of God and what he describes in the book of Hebrews is this, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's a party. That's not a, oh, let's see, did you get your things done? Come on. You know, that's not the scene. It's festal gathering with innumerable, innumerable angels. Do you remember Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah 6, right? And he, the, the heavens were open and he saw, right, seraphim and angels and God and the throne. And he, and he goes, 
Ah, I'm not worthy, right? And then he was touched and healed. And here's the thing. We are made worthy. We are welcome at the party. We belong there. We're not out of place. We belong there. I'm going to finish here with just help from my friends. One man named Augustine. And uh, it's not my son. It's the man whose name rhymes with his. Remember the guy I told you that likes to dine? You remember him from, for those who weren't here, go back. I told him my son's name, and he goes, you know, it's Augustine. <laughs> Just don't be that guy. It's Augustine. Do you have a time machine? How did you? I love my enemies. Augustine, St. Augustine, and little C.S. Lewis talking about this. Because listen to this. Let's pick it up in verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. If you want resources on the Sabbath, I I was going to teach on this. I don't have time. Let's put it this way. Jesus is our Sabbath. That's where we rest. Moving on. These that join themselves to me, I will bring to my holy mountain. This is where we need imagination. This is what Hebrews is describing, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable angels and festal gathering. That's where I'm taking you, God says, to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful. Nobody makes me anything. What about my free will? We'll take care of that. I'm going to make you joyful. I'm going to override all your problems and confusions, and barriers, and options. No option. God. Augustine says about that, The soul of man shall hope under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of thy house, and the torrents of thy pleasures you will give them to drink. For in thee is the fountain of life, and in your light we shall see light. He says this, give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Right? This is not performance and work. This is love and pleasure at its root. Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. It sounds like the Statue of Liberty, right? Give me one far away in the desert who is thirsty and sighs for the springs of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. mean. If I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I'm talking about. Wow. To drink, to be transformed, right? Thoughts, 
yeah, I was talking with a brother today, and he was talking about how we just don't view God the right way. And I was like, yeah, understatement. Like, I, and I'm just struck by it. We are just so riddled with concerns and selfishness and pettiness. And then God says, my delighting in you, and that doesn't strike the heart. God, it should shatter us. We should fall over. You've had men make you swoon, and they're doofuses. When the God of the universe says, my delight is in you, and we're like, what's for lunch? So, uh, C.S. Lewis, describing being in the presence. It's him. Well, it's a character named Ransom and a character named Merlin. And what has happened is they're being enveloped by the presence. Tell me this is performance-oriented. And ask yourself if he's on to something here. God, and remember, I'm getting this from this idea that God will make you joyful in his house of prayer. And what is that? That's where you commune with God. Right? So it's going to take you to the holy mountain. It's where God is. It's his holy mountain. There will be prayer, which is communion and communication with God, and the result will be joy. So here they are, sitting in this room. Quick agitation seized them. All right, so don't take notes. Just take note. Quick agitation seized them. A kind of boiling and a bubbling in mind and heart which shook their bodies also. It went to a rhythm of such fierce speed. They feared their sanity must be shaken into a thousand fragments. And then it seemed that this had actually happened. But it did not matter. For all the fragments went rolling to and fro like glittering drops and then reunited themselves. He's reaching. It was a heavenly pleasure. He found himself, Ransom, sitting and the very heart of language, Jesus the Logos, he's sitting in the heart of language. Now, let me try a little something here. Like when we pray, we talk. We use these words, right? And I believe tongues is, is getting at, bursting past the limits of our language. And this is going even further. And saying you're in the heart of language, which is what? Communion. Have you ever talked without talking? This is what's happening here. He's in the heart of language, in the white, hot furnace of essential speech. All fact was broken. I mean, come on, people. Some of you are like, well, are you saying there's no facts? Listen, all, I just think this, <laughs> I just think when we see the face, we're not going to be thinking in those terms. Well, that's a fact. You just, it's going to be gone as a category, right? Show me a man in love. He knows what I'm talking about. All fact was broken, splashed into cataracts, caught turned inside out, needed slain, and reborn as meaning. 
So it didn't lose meaning. For the Lord of meaning himself, the herald, the messenger, was with them. He goes on. A summer breeze was blowing into the room, but the breeze of such a summer as England never has, laden like heavy barges, laden so heavily you thought it could not move, laden with ponderous fragrance of night-scented flowers, sticky gums, groves that drop odors, and with the cool savor of midnight fruit, it stirred the curtains. It lifted a letter that lay on the table. It lifted the hair, which had a moment before been plastered on Merlin's forehead. The room was rocking. They were afloat. And I think they were still seated. They were afloat. A soft tingling and shivering as of foam and breaking bubbles ran all over their flesh. Tears ran down Ransom's cheeks. Why? He's no longer an alien. He alone, because he had had encountered this before, he alone knew from what seas and what islands that breeze blew. Merlin did not. But in him, Merlin also, the inconsolable wound, in which, with which man is born, waked and ached at this touching. <laughs> Read C.S. Lewis. These yearnings and fondlings, you know what I'm talking about. These yearnings and fondlings were, however, only forerunners. <laughs> Just getting started. Something harder, shriller, more perilously ecstatic, came out of the center of all the softness. Both the humans trembled. Merlin, because he did not know what was coming. Ransom, because he knew. And now it came. It was fiery, sharp, bright, ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light. It was charity. What does that word mean? We give to charity. What does that mean? The Greek root is charis. means grace. It was grace. It was grace. Let me just read that again. That was the grace of God. What is that? Well, it means he doesn't punish us. It's a power. It's him. Fiery, sharp, bright, ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light. What is it? It's grace. Grace, but not as mortals imagine it. Not even as it has been humanized for them since the incarnation of the Word. I hope you're sticking with me. But this grace was the translunary virtue fallen upon them direct from the third heaven. This is in the presence Guys, this isn't enough. Some of you are maybe like, this is absurd. This is scratching. C.S. Lewis has been awakened and he's scratching, reaching for the presence of God and what it would do to us. Fall upon directly from the third heaven to become what Peter says, partakers of the divine nature, not just observers. At this point, we are barely observers of the divine nature. 
And C.S. Lewis is describing what he imagines it would be like to partake, to be in, right? As he describes, to mingle with the beauty. It is unmitigated. They were blinded, scorched, deafened. They thought it would burn their bones. They could not bear that it should continue. They could not bear that it should stop. Show me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Before angels, a man might sink. Before this, he might die. But if he lived at all, he would laugh. It's just going to be so much joy. I will make them joyful. Okay, I'm going to bring the foreigners and the eunuchs to my holy mountain. What are we going to do there? We've got some work to do? Yeah, and I'm going to do it, and it's making you joyful. That's the to-do list. I'm going to pleasure you. And he's got a hand and game. He knows how to do it. If you had caught one breath of this wind, you would have felt yourself taller than before. Though you were a cripple, your walk would become stately. Though a beggar, you would have wa- torn your, you would have worn your rags. Kingship and power and festal, there's that word from Hebrews, kingship and power and festal pomp and courtesy shot from him now as sparks fly from an anvil. Courtesy. This effect was like a long sunlit wave, creamy crested and arched with emerald that comes on nine feet tall with roaring and with terror and unquenchable laughter. I love the laughter imagery here. God is laughing with joy. Is that how you picture him? Like he's so happy. He's the happiest being in the universe. He's the only one that's ever known true happiness. He's literally, things make him mad. Yes, but those things are always the right things, so that makes him glad. Like at the root, he's not anger. He is happy, thrilled. He describes this as a tidal wave of laughter. It comes on nine feet tall with roaring and with terror and unquestionable laughter. One little portion more here. Something tonic and lusty and cheerily cold like a sea breeze is coming over them. There was no fear anywhere. The blood inside them flowed as if to a marching song. They felt themselves taking their places in the ordered rhythm of the universe, side by side with punctual seasons and patterned atoms in the obeying seraphim. They're being made right. Under the immense weight of their obedience. Now that's obedience. What is obedience? He tells you what to do and you do it. This is what obedience is. Alignment. You are aligned. You see, you savor, you enter, you align. And for the first time, you are obedient. And you don't have a choice. And you love it. Because of that. Their wills stood up straight and untiring like eased of all fickleness and all protestings. They stood gay, light, nimble, and alert. 
They had outlived all anxieties. Care was a word without meaning. Listen to this. Last sentence. Ransom realized that to live is going to give the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? Here's how he puts it. I think it's good. To live is to share without effort in that processional romp. Let's say that again. What's a romp? It's a party. It's a dance. It's just just everything he's been describing, this onslaught of joy, joyful order and beauty and grace. He says that to live is to share in that, right, to participate without effort. This is just alignment. To share without effort in this processional romp. That's the purpose of life. Now back to our lives. I hope that is helpful. <laughs> Helps me a bit. I should redefine a lot. Maybe this. This would be, I want to encourage us to maybe have this takeaway. I want you to picture God laughing. Not at you. What is he laughing at? What is? Who he is. It's a pleasure. Right? There's the laughter of some, something ironic. It's not that. It's just delight. It's when you hear kids having a delightful time and just laughing. That's, ask God to help you See that, not just as who he sometimes is, but at what is root. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Delight and joy and pleasure is the essence of God. So let me invite the response team up. And we're going to participate in a processional romp. And Lord willing, share in it without effort without effort so we will yes respond in song and ask God to meet us there part of I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on music but part of it is to shatter the purpose of it is to shatter fact take you somewhere so we'll do that um, you can give online, give in person. Thank you for your support of this church and its mission and God's mission here. Um, on that note, if you have questions about wh- what, what, is that, what does that look like? Who manages that? Who plans it? I would love, we're, we have systems and plans and accountability. I'd love to share that with you or, or send you to someone on the finance team. Um, we'll take communion. So hopefully on the way in, you grab the communion cup or one was given to you. If you don't have one, you can get one near the entrance. And this is where we remember. This is the revelation of God's salvation, right? He says his salvation will be revealed. And that's it. The fullness of God, pleased to dwell in the Son, and then him 
slaughtered for us, and then brought back to life and ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. This is where it happened at the cross, the murder of the Son of God on our behalf, and where we as foreigners are brought in and joined to God by faith. All right? So with the Lord, with your family, friends, share, pray, and eat together. So let me pray. God, thank you for teachers like Lewis and Augustine that help us grasp. I pray for the teacher, the Holy Spirit, helper to come uh, because we can only know your mind in that way. So I pray that you would stir up, that you would show us our name, our identity, that you would give us a picture of your joy. So we love you, God. We long to love you more. And we just praise you. Amen.